welcome back to another episode of Working Well. As always, I'm Declan. And I'm Josh. You nailed it. Uh, and today we are being joined by our third guest of the show, uh, the amazing Dr. Happy, aka Dr. Tim Sharp. Uh, so, Dr. Happy, Dr. Tim, what are we, we going to call him today, Josh? I'm flipping. Yeah, I actually show. was like. How do I address you? Is it Dr. Sharp, Dr. Tim, Dr. Happy? I actually can't remember how I addressed him, so I hope it was appropriate. Let's call him Dr. Tim from here on in. Cool, Dr. Um, Tim. Dr. Tim is a sought-after speaker and facilitator. He's a consultant and a coach, a writer and a podcaster, spokesperson and brand ambassador. Uh, he actually shaped my early career. I saw him at a conference a few years ago, and he was really one of the pioneers of positive psychology in Australia, and I fell in love with not only his insight and knowledge, but the tangibility and practicality of it. So to have him on the show today was an absolute hoot for me. Uh, hmm. Dr. Tim has three degrees in psychology um, and he's also been running uh, his organization uh, for years now, for, for decades and, and making such a difference, not only in the individual space, but also in the workplace and corporate space. He's worked with uh, organizations, including Twitter, Dyson, Ernst & Young, uh, IBM, Westpac, NAB, Coles, Coca-Cola, Telstra. There's so many in there. Like this guy has really made a difference uh, in the world o- over his career. And I'm so excited for you as our listener to, to tap into this conversation that we just had. I mean, the 45 minutes we spent with Dr. Tim was incredible. Josh, what are you excited for people to, to hear from Dr. Tim on this episode? <laughs> Honestly, I think everyone just needs to strap in and just kind of turn their brains on because, yeah, this yeah, this guy's mind's next level. He's been around this stuff for a long, long time. And there's a lot, a lot of wisdom in his words. Yeah. I'd, this is one of the episodes I'd recommend having like a pen and paper ready to go yeah. and just taking notes, maybe even do two listens of it, um, share it around your organization. There are so many gems of wisdom in there. Um, not only in changing like the big concepts we spoke about can changing complete paradigms about how workplaces are structured, but also in the, I guess, the more actionable, tangible, nitty gritty, finer details as well. Mm. Um, there's a nice balance between those two in this episode. So with that said, please join us in welcoming Dr. Happy, aka Dr. Tim Sharp to the show. Well, welcome to the show. It's good to see you again. We obviously caught up a couple of weeks ago, um, which is what led to today. And I know what I've been quite excited for in that time and in the lead up to this is to dive a little bit more into your areas of interest and passion around workplaces and workplace happiness. Um, I first saw you speak years ago now. I don't even remember how many years ago, but at Happiness Heads Causes, the conference in Sydney. Um, And I remember being really drawn to and resonating quite a lot with your approach in the sense of not only having some really cool concepts and ideas around workplace happiness and well-being and flourishing, but also the practicality and the tangibility of it. And that's something that really hit home for me. Actually, something that led me to go and study positive psychology myself as a postgraduate. Um, you were quite an influence on that decision. So mate, I am honored to have you here. I'm very grateful to be joined by you. Um, before we get into questions and diving into those topics, I would love to first and foremost hand across to you to give you a chance to introduce yourself to our listeners and to our audience and to share, I guess, a bit of your background. I'm always curious about why people do what they do. Um, why did you end up in this field, especially starting, I know, more in, uh, in clinical psychology? What led to go down this path um, and really what drew you to it? 
Uh, yeah, well, look, firstly, thanks for having me um, and thanks for that uh, very nice uh, and positive introduction. Um, to, uh, to answer your question, um, well, there's actually probably a couple of answers to that. Um, the first answer to, well, what drew me into psychology was um, uh, in some ways a, um, an undefined or poorly verbalised interest in human behaviour. And I say that as a you know 17 or 18-year-old or whatever I was when I finished school, not really knowing what I wanted to do, not being interested remotely in anything else. But um, although I didn't really know what psychologists did, I did have this, as I said, vague interest in um, trying to understand what makes people tick. So uh, luckily, as it turns out, that drew me into psychology. I had a few um, stumbles or detours along the way, but um, one thing led to another. I eventually finished my um, undergrad with honours. Um, was lucky enough, I think, to also stumble into the clinical master's degree and set off on the first part of my career, which was as a clinical psychologist and clinical academic, um, which is what I thought I wanted to do, what I loved to do for the first as a part of my career. Uh, I really enjoyed, found it incredibly satisfying to be a clinical psychologist, um, researcher and lecturer. Um, I then had a bit of a change of direction. So the next answer this is another part of the answer to that. And um, as I think I explained the last time we spoke, um, sort of accidentally found myself in um, in private practice where I discovered a bit of an entrepreneurial gene um, and then actually kind of became a businessman where I was growing a big practice uh, or several practices in a way. Um, and what drew me into that was very much, well, not accidental, I suppose in the first instance it came about because the practice got very busy, so I had to put on more people. And then I found myself, um, as I said, becoming a almost an entrepreneur businessman to try to meet the need that wasn't being met at that stage. And then the final part, I suppose, is from private practice into more, um, so private practice in therapy into more of a focus on business and organisations. And once again, uh, I really stumbled into that. It wasn't specifically something I set out to do. I started doing a bit of work with another guy um, and we started running what at the time were stress management programs, work-life balance programs. And I found myself speaking to organisations, running more workshops, um, and then found that I enjoyed it. Um, and so I suppose as I enjoyed it and as the demand continued, I more specifically, more actively worked on, you know, studied out, researched, practised how to best deliver the principles that were really the same, I suppose. I mean, humans are humans wherever they are, but I guess work really hard at applying, you know, modifying and applying them to a workplace, to an organisation, which I thought, which I always thought and which I continue to think is very important because we spend so much of our lives in the workplace that I think if we, you know, this idea of waiting till the weekend to enjoy our lives, this idea of, you know, thank God it's Friday, I've always felt quite was quite sad because, you know, those people who, there's nothing wrong with enjoying your weekends, but those people that kind of live their lives to clock out at 5pm on a Friday so they might enjoy 48 hours of getting pissed and having silly fun is, and not that there's anything wrong with fun, but it, it, again, I always thought that was a bit sad because that's, you know, five-sevenths of our lives that people are kind of throwing away. And I suppose I thought if I could contribute even in a small way to helping people enjoy those, you know, the other five days of their lives at least a bit to find meaning and purpose in their work and even fun, um, then that would be a good contribution. So that's both a, a short, uh, a brief description, but also a long answer. I'm happy to clarify or elaborate on any of that if you'd like. No, I think that's fantastic. And thank you for being so open with your journey and sharing that with us. And I mean, straight away, the idea of contributing to making workplaces a happier, more fulfilling place to be that contributes something to our life outside of just a paycheck 
imagine not that long ago and not that many decades ago would have been a very outlandish idea. And I think more and more we're seeing it become almost an expectation, especially in like the millennial generation going through wanting more sense of meaning and purpose and contribution from their career path and from their workplaces. I'm curious from your perspective, you obviously had quite a, a lengthy career. How have you seen the conversations around workplace well-being, workplace happiness, workplace culture change um, over those decades? Yeah, well, well done for politely referring to my age. Uh, it was very diplomatic of you. I am incredibly old, but thanks for making it sound kind of... Uh, I'd say wise. Let's yeah. say wise. <laughs> uh, that would, to come back to your question, look, it has been very interesting. And I, I suppose I have sort of uh, sat through, you know, or, or experienced the the breadth of discussions from the very early stages of when, well, well, actually that's not entirely true because way before my time there, there was a field of organizational psychology. Uh, there was a field of, or what some, sometimes it's called industrial psychology. So it certainly predates my professional career, but it was quite different at the same time. Um, and so in my professional life, I've seen uh, discuss, well, well, specifically the, this, the discussions around happiness are relatively recent. Uh, and with that come relatively recent discussions around wellness and well-being. Before that, there was a focus, I suppose, more so on productivity and performance. Uh, and then I suppose in my early days, I saw, again, the focus is on stress management and then work-life being, uh, sorry, um, uh, work-life balance. Um, and, but the idea, so well, as you would know, positive psychology in and of itself in a formal discipline is relatively new. So the idea of actually exploring how we can enjoy more uh, more happiness, more positive emotions within the workplace is something that wouldn't have even been thought of, you know, well, maybe not 10, but certainly 20 years ago would have been a, you know, kind of a radical or alien idea. But but I think what, what I've enjoyed most, I suppose, is seeing one, in my early days, I had to educate a lot of organisations and, and now I don't, which is a great thing because now a lot of organisations already know it. Two, I had to convince them of the benefits and I don't really have to do that anymore because there's such a strong body of research uh, and this is why it's become so popular is that it's not just sort of a nice thing to do, but increasingly we've come to learn, and I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of this research, that in very simple terms, happy workers are better workers. You know, happiness correlates with engagement, which goes towards uh, discretionary effort, um, which then goes towards performance and productivity. Um, but it's also associated with attracting good people, keeping good people, uh, getting the most of good people. So, um, you know, whereas before I had to sort of explain what I'm doing and why it's helpful, now, most organizations know that, and it's just a matter of, well, how can we make it work? It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, productivity versus happiness is sort of the key focuses. I almost think nowadays of productivity and performance is like a lag measure that comes almost as a result of more underlying things. Um, perhaps happiness and engagement being a couple of them. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that for so long, those were the key metrics that we really drove staff culture by it's like what is the output and i don't know from my perspective i think maybe is that some remnants left over from the industrial revolution where we were literally hired and trained and ranked as staff members based on our output in an hour um, it's interesting that we're now potentially going through that um a change culturally in how workplaces see value in their team hundred oh, percent. It's uh, you're right. It is a, um, a hangover in a sense. Uh, but but let me make it clear. I think, and I, I, I'm often saying this. I, I don't. It's it's not inappropriate to measure performance. Um, mm. It's still a relevant thing to do. I guess it's just how you define that. 
Um, and there are people who measure it, I think, in the wrong way. There are people that, that over-measure some aspects or under-measure some aspects. Um, you know, I, I think it's about really understanding, as you said, what are the drivers and measuring those things as well because we, we do know for a fact that, um, in a, well, I don't want to get into both. So, so happiness isn't necessarily the most appropriate word to use sometimes here. But if we talk more generally about positive emotions, mm. positive emotions most certainly uh, drive performance. You know, positive mm. emotions are energizing. They're inspiring. They uh, contribute to us collaborating with better, better with other people, um, both internally and externally. They, you know, contribute to innovation and creativity. And um, so the fact that, um, you know, so, so the fact that in the past, happiness, dare I say, it, has been seen as sort of some, you know, maybe like a luxury or some random side effect. Um, now it, it definitely is, or it should be seen as a key driver. Um, so it's almost, you know, I, I sometimes, well, sort of half joke, but I'm half serious that any organisation that isn't focused on or doesn't prioritise the happiness of its employees, as long as you define that term correctly, is really negligent in a sense to their shareholders. They're not, by, by not getting the most out of their people. Um, you know, even if as a business owner, um, if, even if your sole focus is on profitability, and if it is, that's not entirely inappropriate, but if your sole focus is on profitability, then you need to understand, or you probably do understand that profitability comes from productivity and or performance and performance and or productivity comes from positive emotions. So, you know, they really do need to be understood properly and, and seen with, you know, how they work together. I'm quite curious to ask you something. Me and Declan have talked about this quite extensively. Where do you think the responsibility lies for culture and happiness in the workplace? Is it on the employer or on the employee or curious to get your thoughts? Yeah, great, great question and really important question. Um, uh, but, but one that's often, well, I think as you almost did there, you didn't quite do it, but one that's often, um, I think the mistake is to see it in dichotomous terms. Yeah. Uh, and it's not. So my personal opinion, based on the research and a lot of experience, is that it's all of the above. Um, I've always been a fairly strong advocate for individual responsibility. You know, I think each and every one of us, when we walk in the you know, office door, or if you are going in the office doors, forget about COVID, but, <laughs> um, or even if it's your home office, whatever it is, but, you know, when we front up for work, whether it's in an office or at our desk, wherever it is, I do believe very much that each and every one of us has a responsibility to, you know, to choose our attitude, to choose, um, you know, how we're going to interact with others, whether we're going to be kind and compassionate and collaborative and helpful, or whether we're going to be sort of selfish and just take, take, take. So, so I do feel, um, you know, there's definitely a role, it's definitely important to focus on what each of us can do as individuals, but just as importantly, um, that happens within a context. And I guess that context is what we call culture. And culture is in some ways the sum total of all of our individual efforts, but it's also something a bit more than that that's driven and, and set up to some extent by the powers that be, um, by the executives, by the leaders, by the managers, whatever. So, so at the same time, and I don't think this is contradictory at all, for me to be able to do what I want to do as an individual, that needs to be supported um, and it needs to fit within, uh, again, what we call culture, um, you know, which is just you know, sort of group attitudes and group behaviours. And uh, so, you know, there's no doubt that uh, whether it's a CEO or the head of HR or the chief happiness officer or whoever it might be, those leaders have a very important role to play because 
and I guess that if you look at the sort of a worst case scenario, if as an individual, I want to bring you know, positivity to work and I want to be collaborative and I want to do all the right things, but if that's being undermined or if it's um, not supported in some way by the culture of the organisation, then it's either going to fail or I'm going to give up and leave. Um, and you sometimes see that, you know, you sometimes see people leaving organisations because there isn't, I guess, what we call a good cultural fit. And, and you know, that's obviously a pity. So anyway, to come back to your very good question, again, I think it's it's both. It's all, all of those things and they really need to work together. I think you've actually answered my next question because I was kind of forward projecting into like maybe one of our listeners is really unhappy with their work and I was going to kind of ask um yeah, what advice would you have for them? And I think you kind of touched on it there. Like if they, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, but if they showed up with a better attitude, took responsibility, but also have that awareness of, is this a place that does support where I'm at sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah, look, again, really good question. It's something that comes up all the time, obviously. Um, and look, it's a little bit hard to answer that, you know, without knowing the specifics. But in, in a general sense, what I would say is, um, uh, you know, look, again, Definitely try the best you can to to bring your positivity, to do what you want to do, achieve what you want to achieve. Uh, if you're struggling with that, um, you know, talk to all the relevant people. Um, uh, and that, so I guess in an ideal world, that's your colleagues, your manager, you know, whoever, however you fit within the organisation. Uh, if that then fails, maybe talk to other people within the organisation who maybe aren't within your direct line but still might be able to help. Um, uh, so I guess that, you know, the the first thing I'd say is do all you can to make it work because although the grass always looks greener on the other side, um, it's also it's often much easier to, to fix where you are than to go somewhere else and start afresh. But at the same time, there's no doubt there's a point at which, um, you know, I think in our society we frequently value persistence and perseverance and I think we sometimes undervalue or see in too negative way the idea of giving up. But I think there's a point at which we've got to walk away if something's not working. And that's not necessarily a, or shouldn't necessarily be seen as a reflection of failure or that you've not necessarily done the right thing or even necessarily a failure of the organisation. Sometimes that fit just isn't there. I mean, it could be it could be a failure of the individual. It could be a failure of the organisation. It might just be, um, look, I, you know, it, it's a bit like dating in relationships, I suppose. The fact that uh, you know two people don't necessarily get on doesn't necessarily mean that that one's good or bad or that that person's good or bad it's just the fit's not there and sometimes in an organizational point of view an employee for whatever reason doesn't fit um, and if you've tried everything you can try um, done all the things that you can think of talk to all the relevant people and it's not working uh, it's it's well worth considering uh, looking at other alternatives so um, you know that's a fairly broad slightly vague answer but um, oh, that was great yeah it's interesting that you use the dating analogy it's one that we use as well with workplaces <laughs> of uh you know, as you said, finding that it might just not be the right fit and that's not to put the blame on anyone, just not might not be the right fit. Uh, I know that we've found sometimes either the individual or the organisation doesn't find that out until the relationship, we might call it, is pretty progressed because of how um, rare it is for the hiring and onboarding process to be transparent and honest on both ways. Like we all hear the story of you go in for an interview and they're like, what are your greatest weaknesses? I work too hard and I care too much. And <laughs> you know, they've got their perfect mask on, but then the organization does the same and goes, we're a perfect place to work. You're going to love it here. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your perspective on that and how you've gone working with organizations and with workplaces in terms of building a more honest, transparent culture, in, especially in that onboarding phase, 
and also is there a point where that like where that's not beneficial like can we have too much transparency in our culture hmm. uh well, so there's a couple of different parts of the question I'll go back to the to the recruitment phase um look i do think you know if we're going to be realistic there's a Lim- I, I don't think it will ever be perfect. I don't think there's ever going to be a perfect way that, you know, 100%, you know, you will always get the right people all the time. I think that's a bit unrealistic and I think we probably already know that. There are definitely things you can do to improve that. And I think, you know, one of the simple things that I've advocated for a long time and I think the research supports is um, hiring for um, attitude, personality as opposed to skills, in a sense. So, you know, I think a lot, I think too often sometimes organizations look for skills or technical abilities, which you do need to some extent. You can't completely ignore them. I mean, you know, you, I guess the, the extreme example is, you know, uh, if I go to hospital and have to have surgery, I want that surgeon to be technically proficient. Or if I hop on an aeroplane, I want the pilot to know what the fuck he's doing. Um, uh, So, you know, technical skills and abilities are certainly relevant and important, more so in some circumstances than others. But more often than not, especially for, for, you know, well, for a lot of us, and I think a lot of the people we're talking to, what's just as if not more important um, is the person. The person, because you can more often than not, again, you can teach skills and technical abilities. That stuff's often learnable, especially if the person's got at least a basic understanding or some fundamental training. What's much harder to teach is, again, is sort of is attitude, is um, is friendliness, is uh, collaborate, or, or whatever your organisation values. Now, this raises another important question that I think a lot of organisations uh, either aren't clear on their values or they don't actually practise the values. But that's what I would recommend. I think, and this is where it tends to work better: is an organisation or, or within that a team that's very clear on what it values. You know, whether that's positivity or inclusiveness, or uh, as I said, you know, I don't know, whatever it might be, friendliness. Um, uh, firstly, that's very clear on them, and that lives them, and knows how to identify them in a potential recruit. Because um, if you get a good fit there, that's going to that's going to be very meaningful and very significant, uh, more so maybe than someone that doesn't quite know how to use the IT package you're using. Um, you know, if, if they don't know how to use Slack or Salesforce or whatever, but that's, you can teach that. And that's, you know, in the scheme of things, relatively easy. So look, at again, it will never be 100%. There's all sorts of, as I'm sure you're familiar, there's, you know, all sorts of psychological surveys and tests or that you can do. And they're, they're not, again, they're not completely inappropriate. Um, but I do, at the end of the day, I think they can be overused or overrated to some extent. I think it comes down to sitting down. And that, sorry, just to go on, one other thing that I think not enough people do is talk to previous employees, sorry, employers. Um, now, there's, sometimes that can be difficult because if someone's, you know, if I'm interviewing someone and they haven't necessarily told their current employer, which for, obviously they have a right to do, then it might not be hard, but they've probably got two or three other previous employers. And, you know, that's the best way to predict someone's future behaviour is to look at their past behaviour. So talking to previous managers, uh, again, not so much about technical skills, but how did this person get on with their colleagues? You know, how did this person respond when there was a particular, you know, difficult project or a challenge in the office? Or how did they respond when, um, you know, they were faced with another colleague that they didn't like for some reason? Asking those sorts of questions, they're the sorts of things that, um, you know, the answers to those sorts of questions, I think, are, are really important and not enough interviewers um, delve into that. You know, I think we focus on, you know, what are your qualifications? What, again, what packages do you know how to use, et cetera? Um, so, sorry, I think that's, 
Uh, I think there was another part to your question, but I can't remember what that was. Oh, the other part, uh, thank you for sharing that too. I'm, my mind's having flashes to an idea of being on the surgery table and hearing the surgeon go, this is my first time practicing, but I have a great can-do attitude and I don't know how uh, confident <laughs> I'd be. But the other part of my question was, is there a point where transparency can go too far in an organization? We're calling more and more for organizations and workplaces to be transparent. Um, is there a point where that pendulum can overswing? Uh, look, it's a really good, it's another good question something that's been discussed a lot. Um, I suppose to some extent it comes down to how you define transparency. Um, uh, and so that's, you know, there are some organisations that that have, have looked at and trialled completely open books. So every employee can see the finan- you know, the financial accounts and every detail. Um, so, that, you know, there's all sorts of ways you can think about it. When it comes to the psychological aspects and particularly mental health, one of the things we've seen in recent years, which, so, which is a little bit, maybe a bit different to what you've asked, but we'll come back to that later if you want, but is the idea of authenticity at work and vulnerability and particularly in the mental health space, you know, the idea of if I've, uh, you know, if, if I'm having a bad period and I'm feeling depressed or anxious or whatever, you know, to what extent uh, is it helpful or should I share that with my colleagues or managers? Um, now, again, there's no, well, there's no right or wrong answer to that, I think. Um, it will significantly differ from person to person and even context to context. What we do know is that there are significant advantages to expressing and showing uh, vulnerability in the workplace, to being more authentic. We know that managers, for example, uh, that express and show more vulnerability and authenticity in the workplace are uh, better liked uh, by their team members, more respected, and, in fact, they have higher levels of engagement. So people want to work with them, people want to stay with them because they're seen as real. Um, So we know that's a fact. We also know there are advantages in just anyone, you know, sharing their story um, because that leads to a more open and ultimately more positive, more real culture within a workplace. But at the same time, no one should ever feel that they have to tell everything all the time. So I think, we, you know, we all need to own our own stories and I guess we all need to choose based on a whole range of individual variants, um, you know, to what extent do I want to share certain aspects of myself with certain people at certain times? Um, so, again, I think that will really differ a lot from different people. But the simple answer is yes, transparency is a good thing. Yes, authenticity and vulnerability is a good thing. But it will, it, it's again, it's not an either-or thing. And I guess we've all got to f- work out where we fit in what I suppose is like a continuum. Yeah, so it's almost that personal responsibility thing again that you were talking about before of like having the self-awareness and the self-understanding to know what is going to work best for that person as an individual in that particular workplace, in that particular context. Exactly. Um, and, and I've been asked, you know, I've been asked that question by people who say, look, I, I, you know, something along the lines of I'd like to be more open, but I, I'm, I'm not confident that my manager will receive it well. And so that's a really, you know, something really important to consider. I, I wouldn't advocate sharing if you don't think your manager will be supportive. You know, that could actually be counterproductive. So you do need to take into account, you know, all of those sort of, well, yes, you've got to own it yourself, but you need to take into account some of those external factors as well. Yeah. Mm. I want to look back. You mentioned before um, the idea of organisations measuring the right things and you've seen some measure the right things and some measure the wrong things and some put too much weight on some measurements that might only be the side dish, but they're treating it as the main plate, uh, we might say as an analogy. What uh, I'm curious from your perspective, if you were looking for like great culture in an organisation, a place that you're like, this really has the hallmarks of something that could really be a space for people to flourish and thrive at work, what are some of the things that they're measuring compared to other organisations? Uh 
Well, look, again, well, it really differs depending on the organisation because obviously different businesses, different organisations, they're trying to achieve different things. So it's up to each organisation to work out what's important to them, what are they trying to achieve. But I, I guess I might just go back a step and, and focus on something that uh, although they often don't realise it, too many organisations focus on and it's just ridiculously, it's, it's absurd really, to be honest, and that's... Um, the number of hours that someone sits on their desk on their chair in front of a desk. Oh. Just, okay. gonna, hang on, we're going to celebrate this. We've been having this conversation for oh a while. My God. I think the pay by hour system is yeah. ludicrous. Well, well it's funny because it's, it's something I've been banging on about for years. And what's been interesting, so the whole COVID and working at home thing has really highlighted this. I think so. You know, so many organisations, so many people feel like they've got to be in the you know in the office or at their desk at say. You know, eight thirty. They can't leave till five thirty. Whatever it might be, those forget about those numbers. Um, and so many managers say, if I can't see my person in my co- sitting at their desk, then they're not working. Now that is patently absurd. We know for a fact that being a bum on a seat in front of a computer doesn't necessarily mean you're working. Uh, being somewhere else doesn't necessarily mean you're not working. So that idea of being present as an indicator of productivity or performance is is absurd. Um, and so I guess the question then is, well, if I'm not going to measure that, if I can't see them in the office or I can't, or even these days, you know, some organisations can track computer use and they think that that's an indication. And there's, you know, there's pros and cons of that. And I'm not saying it's completely inappropriate, but the fact that someone's tapping away at their computer doesn't necessarily mean they're producing anything or producing anything of worth. Mm. So this then, so the answer to the question then comes into defining what is of worth to that particular for that particular person in that particular role within that particular organization so again as you can imagine that's going to vary considerably because different people have different roles within the organization different organizations have different goals or different you know whether it's kpis or targets whatever you want to call them but that's that's what i really encourage people to think of so the big big picture uh what's your organization trying to achieve you know are they trying to save lives are they trying to um uh are they trying to um you know, well, sorry, when you first asked the question, I was thinking about Batir, who we sort of spoke about off camera a bit earlier, youth mental health organisation that, uh, that I'm very involved in. So if, I'm, if I can talk a bit about them, because I've been very involved in them, their primary reason for being is uh, to promote positive conversations around mental health and to smash the stigma associated with mental ill health. So that's kind of their, that's the goal, that's their, the trophy that they're aiming towards. So if you bring that back then, different people within the organisation play different roles and make different contributions towards achieving that. So what we need to understand, if you're going to do this well, we need to understand what contribution is each person trying to make and then how do we measure that? So is it, you know, the one, is it running more school programs? And then if it is running more school programs, is running them effectively. How do we measure effective running of those programs? Well, through engagement, self-reported engagement, et cetera, et cetera. But then not everyone at Batir is out there delivering the program. So what are the other people doing that contributes to the greater goal? Um, we need to define that and, the, and define that differently for different people. Um, and then we need to track that. Um, and again, you know, some people don't even know what they're trying to do. And then even if they do, they're not measuring it appropriately. So there's a, a lot of room. And this is one of the other things that I've been sort of passionate about for a while. There's a lot of this stuff is not overly difficult. It's not overly expensive. And it's, very, it could potentially lead to massive gains for everyone involved for relatively little effort um, if, if only people focused on the right sorts of things.
So why do you think it's uh, still so slow to be adopted? Because you're right, these are conversations that have been had for quite a while now. Um, and when they are quiet, the literature is stacking up in terms of them being relatively easy to implement, relatively inexpensive, and with a potential large upside um, across many measures. What do you think the resistance is or the gap? Well, the, uh, the biggest gap is probably ignorance. So you said you referred to the research. The reality is not many people are aware of that research because um, they're too busy doing other stuff. So, you know, most CEOs aren't, uh, that's an overgeneralization, but well, a lot of CEOs aren't familiar with this research. A lot of people within the organisation are not familiar with it. Um, they're too busy doing their other jobs, even though I think this should be part of their job, and so they're just not aware of it. If they are aware of it, what it might require to implement is undoing some previous practices. Now, that's easier said than done. Um, some people aren't prepared to, to make the changes because um, that upsets people. That, you know, got, you've got to be a bit disruptive, really, if you're going to bring some of this about. Um, and I think too often, um, and this is really gets my back up a bit. Uh, these sorts of things are often referred to as soft skills. Um, mm. I hate that term. Oh, I'm ready for you to rant about this, Dr. Tim. Please get oh, okay. angry and get your back up about this because I agree. Please go wild. Well, I think it's, it's well, what upsets me is that, it, one, it's derogatory um, in a sense that um, you know, it's a pejorative term, but two, it's actually misleading because these things aren't soft in any way. There's, very, there's hard science, good, solid, reliable, valid research that supports this more so than a lot of other practices that are embraced within the workplace. So, um, you know, they're, they're, I have no, I mean, I'm by nature, sorry, you know, by training, I'm an academic and scientist. Um, and so I'm, which means I'm very cautious about advocating something that doesn't have strong scientific support. Um, you know, that was bred into me through free degrees and you know, years within the academic system, et cetera. But even with that, I have no qualms at all um, advocating and passionately for some of the things we've spoken about today. Uh, and, and again, what, and that's because they're not soft in any way. There's hard science. And so I suppose what's one of the interesting things that I have and positive things that I have observed you know, in the last decade or so has been a, a blending and emerging in some ways of some of the psychological and positive psychology principles with management schools um, and, and business and management. And you know, I was quite proud many years ago to be made an adjunct professor of a business school here in Sydney because of some of the some of the psychological components to some of the MBA courses they were running, and they could see how important the psychological aspects are to the business aspects. So, but look again to come back to your question. Unfortunately, there is still um, probably a lack of awareness, I think, um, and then maybe a lack of willingness to make changes because that's um, you know, although there's been a lot of talk about change management and disruption over the years, it's still something that people are often reluctant to do. And the the pay by hour and have someone tapping around the computer or sitting bum in seat, I mean, that's such a paradigm shift to completely uphold that. Uh, that's been a, a very long established, um, I guess, structure in how we go about careers. And we're now seeing that maybe there's better ways. This might be a bit of a hot take. I'm going to ask you to hypothesize about the future here. Do you see in the future more and more workplaces moving more towards flexible working arrangements or pay by outcome rather than pay by hour? Uh, I think they're quite different things. So firstly, the flexible work range is 100%. Um, and again, I think I think this is something, well, it was something that was already happening. It would have continued to happen. I think COVID has kind of sped up the, the process to some extent. Um, so I have, uh, well, I don't think any of us, sorry, now that we're starting to come out of COVID, I suppose, we sort of, I think we're 
you know, at the <laughs> at the end, in a sense, and we're starting to see, you know, or starting to think about and even experience a, a kind of a post-COVID world, I think. None of it, and I've spoken to a lot of people about this over the last few months. No one's 100% sure what will happen, but I, I'm relatively confident, and I think most of the speaker, people I've spoken to believe that uh, we won't go back to 100% exactly the same as what it was before. And by that I mean um, a significant number of people will continue to work at least part-time from home or remotely or whatever. Now, that being said, I'll, I'll qualify that by saying that, again, it will differ significantly from person to person and job to job and organisation to organisation because there's no doubt that um, remote working, even if it's part-time, you know, three days in the office, two at home, whatever it might be, that suits some people more than others. Um, some people enjoy that more than others. Um, and it can depend on a whole range of factors like your or your personality, you know, whether you're more introverted or extroverted, whether you've got young kids at home, what your home office setups are like. So there's even, you know, some practical issues that will affect that. But I have no doubt that at least some people will continue uh, in a, a hybrid model, which means, again, that not 100% of people will return uh, to work, and that's um, so. That's both the number of days, but also the location and things like that. So, in terms of that type of, you know, I think I, I think that well, it, we were heading that way, and it will continue. But I think we've, we've sped up the process a bit. The pay per outcome bit again. I, I think uh, you know it's a really interesting. I, I would certainly advocate for it in many cases. Um, I think it would be advantageous for many people in many jobs. But but again, I do think it varies a lot from job to job and organisation. I don't think it would be appropriate everywhere. Um, uh, I mean, I suppose we probably already do see that a bit in some areas. So, for example, um, I guess the classic example is sales, where people are paid a commission, say, or maybe they're on a, you know, a low base salary, but essentially they they make their money through sales and a commission. So in that sense, they're not paid by the hour. Um, they're paid on success. Um, and that, you know, I guess, like anything, there's pros and cons, but that's worked reasonably well it's been relatively established in sales and some related areas I, I do think that would work in some other areas but maybe not everywhere and I guess um, I, I guess we'll see whether it does expand into other aspects of businesses um, in, into the future um, I think I only just have kind of one final question that's been rattling around in my head um, I know we're going to have a lot of like small, medium business owners listening to this um, that might never have considered their workplace culture before. Um, and I'm curious if they're going to start making that change towards like, okay, I want to start taking stock of this, considering the happiness of my employees. Is there a piece of advice that you have for them on where to get started or anything that comes to mind? Yeah, another really good question. So the first thing I'd say is to those people, and you're right, I think there's people that, um, and not necessarily, it's not necessarily a fact of the size of the business either, but there are certainly people or organisations that they haven't really thought about it. And the first thing I'd say to them is whether you think about it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, it's there. You know, it's a bit like the the oxygen around. We don't really think about the air around us or the oxygen around, but it's there and we need it <laughs> and it affects our life. Um, and so many other things within our environment, you know, there's so many aspects of our environment that affect our day-to-day -day lives that we're not necessarily aware of, we don't think about, but they're actually quite important. Um, and in a sense, that's what culture is. So whether you, realize, whether you think about it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, it is there and it is playing a role. So if we accept that, I would say it is worth thinking about <laughs> Because if it is playing a role, we then want to work out, is it playing a positive or a negative role, I suppose? Um, and again, if you're not aware of that, 
you don't know whether to do more or something or less or something or whatever. So the first thing I say is spend some time thinking about it, talk to your people about it. But ultimately, I suppose, if you're the leader or CEO or whatever you might be, then what do you want your culture to be? Because like a lot of these things, again, there's no right or wrong answer. There's no perfect culture. There's no, I mean, we know what works in a general sense. Also, we know the principles that are beneficial in a general sense, but there's definitely not no one, you know, it's not a one size fits all approach. And, you know, even at the risk of contradicting some of the things I've spoken about earlier in terms of the importance of positive psychology and happiness, I've been to, uh, I've been invited to consult and work with some organizations that would call themselves like high performance cultures. They don't necessarily prioritize some of the aspects of health and well-being that I would argue are important, but they've actually openly uh, and honestly essentially decided not to prioritize those things. Now, I don't necessarily agree with them, but they've decided for whatever reasons that they want to focus on profits, performance, whatever, and in some sense they're prepared to sacrifice human well-being. Now, if they choose to do that, that's their choice. Um, again, I'm not necessarily here to say they're right or wrong. The point is you need to know what it is you you, you have and what it is you want, and if you do want a positive culture that involves happy employees, satisfied employees, employees that feel psychologically safe to put their hand up if something's going wrong at all, then you need to look at some of the factors that might influence that either positively or negatively. And then, depending on whether it's working or not, start to make some changes to maximise the good bits and minimise the bad bits, I suppose. So to answer your question, um, you know, awareness, or I guess it's, it's a form of mindfulness in a sense, being aware of what's actually going on and then being able to assess what's working and not working and then making some decisions about how to do more of the stuff that's working um, or introduce more things that will work and undo or stop some of the things that are not working. Did that answer your question? Yeah, most definitely. And I think that gives them a lot to chew on. Um, yeah. And I think the fact, again, if people are listening to this podcast and are at that stage, they're going to be taking these steps, starting to look at things. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as they continue to look at them and, and explore them, uh, I'm curious if they've listened to this and really resonated with you and your approach and your style and I guess some of your philosophies and ethos, where can they continue to interact with your work and, and reach out to you? Uh, oh, thanks for the opportunity. Um, probably the simplest answer to that is uh, my website. So that's um, www.drhappy.com.au. So D-R-H-A-P-P-Y.com.au. Uh, from there, they can find, um, I guess, my social media platforms. So there's links to LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. Um, and, yeah, then uh, that's the way to sort of see. I, I, obviously, I share different things on different platforms, but um, that's probably the simplest step and I'll give them a bit, of, a bit of an idea about who I am and what I do. Fantastic. And we'll put the link for that in the show notes as well. So for those who are listening, make sure you click on that link and you go uh, check out Dr. Happy or Dr. Tim Sharp and get to know him more. As I said, I've felt so grateful for you coming onto the show today. I really do uh, look to you as someone who sparked my first enthusiasm and interest in this field of research and in this area of my life and helped shape my career trajectory a little bit. Uh, so to be able to have you sit down on the show today and, and join us, it really was a huge honor for me. So I really appreciate you coming along today. Oh, I'm flattered uh, and uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, here we are at the end. I hope everyone enjoyed the ride and I hope you have pages and pages and pages of notes because I'm going to re-listen to this episode and probably take notes myself. Um, Declan, do you have any takeaways you'd want to share with the audience? I mean, 
the one I'm still sitting on from the very start of the show was when they said it's negligent for organizations to not be looking at their staff happiness and well-being, not only on the human cost of it, but even just negligent to their shareholders. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited about a world where that is the accepted wisdom and norm. <laughs> so yeah, that that really hit home for me. What about you? What really resonated with you? It's a shame that the listeners can't see uh, the moment where me and you started yes. like quite physically celebrating when um, Dr. Tim started talking about um, pay not, by hour. Pay yeah, by not paying by hour anymore. Obviously, me and Declan are quite fierce believers in pay by outcome. Um, and I really enjoyed um, Tim, Dr. Tim's thoughts around that. Um, especially that idea of like there's there's ignorance first that that's even a possibility, and then I feel like there's fear like in giving employees that that power almost or or, or letting go of some responsibility and letting them take some control. But yeah, it's nice for I think leaders to start to play with these ideas. And yet again, I think it's always nice to, for transparency from our end. It's exciting to have yet another interview on this show and on this podcast where both of us ended it and went well that felt like a little bit of imposter syndrome to be you know interviewing someone of that caliber (laughs) and that insight and that knowledge so it it is nice for us to be stretching ourselves out of our common zone in order to have these conversations and to bring these conversations to you guys as our listeners and as our audience Um, we really appreciate you guys showing up throughout this first season and not only learning from the show, but becoming an active part of it, uh, whether that be through emailing us and letting us know your thoughts on certain episodes or by sharing it on your social medias uh, or tagging us. It's nice to see a community rallying around this that is passionate about making workplaces happier, more fulfilling, more thriving places to work. And as always, we do really, really appreciate those of you who have subscribed to the show and reviewed it. If you haven't done that already, please do so. Uh, We have an amazing season two on the horizon coming up quite soon. Um, And make sure as well, you share this with someone who you feel would benefit from it, be it a colleague, a friend, um, you know, a a manager at work, someone that you go, hey, you really need to hear this conversation and be part of this. Now, obviously click the links in the show notes, make sure you connect with with Dr. Tim and, and go from there. And we spoke a little bit today about what you measure, you can manage and the importance of measuring and being proactive about measuring happiness and well-being and engagement at work. If you don't currently have a way of doing that for your workplace and you would like to learn more about partnering with us to roll out a staff well-being and engagement plan and report, make sure you reach out to us um, via the links in the show notes so we can put together a plan that's suitable for your team, your industry, your specific organization to help you get the insight and the clarity required to make the right actions to make your culture and your workplace one that thrives. But with that said, that officially and formally brings us to the end of season one Uh here on Working Well. Any final words, Josh? Um, Same one as always. I think you already touched on it. Please email us. I'd love to hear any of your takeaways or questions about the episode. Yeah, we really like to hear from you guys. Beautiful. And you know what? With that said, we did it. One season down. (laughs) Celebration time. Woo! (laughs) Let's have some beers. (laughs) See you, everyone.